Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Welcome back to Behind the Knife. Today, we're continuing our financial series, and we are lucky enough to have Dr. Jill Streams, who's going to talk to us today about finding and negotiating your first job. Dr. Jill Streams is a trauma and acute care surgeon and assistant professor of surgery at Vanderbilt University. She has a passion for personal finance, and we're lucky to have her here to share her wisdom as it comes to finding a job and negotiating your first contract. Welcome, Dr. Streams, to Behind the Knife. Uh, Well, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. So Dr. Streams, why are surgery so- trainees so ill-prepared at evaluating future jobs and negotiating their contracts? I think first and foremost, medicine and surgery are very different from the business world. And so many surgical residents have never had a job that required any kind of business skills or negotiation skills. Uh, and really, they were never, for the most part, you know, advanced in the business world where they were negotiating contracts for bodies of work. And so even though most of our residents come through relatively, you know, straight through, there are a few that have had different kinds of jobs, uh, but again, again, most of them not in the business world. So when they enter residency, a lot of the terms of their employment are very tightly regulated by the ACGME. So things like duty hours and uh, benefits and all of those kinds of things, they're basically given a contract to sign when you match into residency. There's no negotiation. You sign it and you start working. And those regulations are great because they protect trainees. Um, But at the same time, they provide a lot of passive kind of management of compensation and benefits and all those kinds of things that we take for granted as residents. Uh, And so then when you go to get a real job, uh, as what I say, you know, as an attending job, You've never gone through that process of looking at a contract and evaluating it for legality and fairness and negotiating aspects of it. Um, And so there are a few residency programs that have things like house staff unions. So Michigan has had one for a long time, Um, but most of these are, are pretty rare. And so trainees really take for granted the process of signing contracts during residency. And then they assume that when they get into the job market, they'll be treated fairly by employers. All right. So let's, um, you know, let's start at the beginning. Uh, So um, you're talking to a trainee. uh, What advice would you give them? At what point should they start their job job search? Um, Do you have a particular timeline that you recommend for them? And and like, where do you even, you know, begin? Yeah. So I think the first part of finding your first job is figuring out what kind of job you want. Uh, there are a lot of different options, and all of those job search processes are a little different. So for the military, obviously, that's kind of one whole separate process of which I have zero expertise. Uh, for academic surgery, you know, the timeline is going to start about a year beforehand, 10 to 12 months before you're going to start. For private practice or more hybrid jobs, that job that timeline might be a little bit compressed. But I generally tell my residents that really at 10 to 12 months before, they should be looking for and researching what kind of jobs they want. And that includes the practice type, the location, 
Um, and then obviously the specialty, are they doing straight general surgery? Have they done a fellowship and they're looking for a combination of general surgery plus their subspecialty, or they want to do, you know, straight vascular surgery or hepatobiliary. All of those things are really important when figuring out, you know, what the job options are. So areas to look or places to look for jobs, first and foremost, is all going to be at the societies. Um, they have job boards online, things like SAGES or EAST or SSO, SVS, they all have job boards. Now that doesn't list all of the jobs that are out there. So other options are headhunters or recruiters. Those are going to be tend to be more the hospital employed and private practice jobs, um, not as much for the academic jobs. Other options are looking for at practice link, LinkedIn or Doximity, uh, job postings on uh, websites, academic department websites or hospital system websites. But honestly, the for at least academic jobs, the biggest uh, area or of untapped potential is word of mouth. Most academic jobs are never posted. Uh, they are only posted if they can't fill them. They have a lot of job, uh, you know, three spots that they need to fill. Um, or they've already got their candidate and they have to post it by law because they're a public institution. Um, and so those are going to be the kind of top uh, places to look for the job and start, you know, narrowing it down the list of what the options are available. Well, that's fascinating that they don't even listen. So they just rely on word of mouth and hoping to get good recommendations from colleagues. Is that their plan or? Uh, I mean, honestly, the academic jobs are in relatively short supply. So the uh, burden is more on the person who's looking for the job than the person who has them. You know, for every academic job, you're going to get, you know, between seven and 15 applications. So, you know, you have your pick of the litter. And when you're in that position, it is automatically puts the advantage towards the institution because wow. they have a plethora of surgeons to choose from. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So let's say you're lucky enough to find that promising job um, and they send you a contract. Uh, what are the critical components of a contract to expect and, and which, you know, how, how should we understand these components? Sure. So first, a little disclaimer, I'm not at all an employment lawyer. <laughs> um, and so Again, all of the things that I am saying here, I learned through experience. Um, I was lucky enough to have a, you know, a spouse who is not in medicine, who's in business, and was able to kind of help guide me through this. But honestly, figuring all of this out was kind of a little bit trial and error. But so when you get a contract from uh, your future employer, it's going to have a few main components. And these are things that are crucial that have to be there. And then there's also a few other things that are kind of extra. So the first is going to be your rank or title. Um, for an academic job, that's going to be assistant professor of surgery. For a private practice, it's going to be, you know, attending surgeon or non-equity partner in a practice. So it's going to, it's going to define what your role in that practice environment is. The next part is going to be the term of the contract. So the length of time that they are proposing to employ you. So that can be as short as one year, or as long as up to five years. I would say the standard academic contract is going to be about three years. After that, then they're going to define uh, the effort that you are putting forth. And so that some people call that FTE or full-time full, -time, full uh, time employment or full-time uh, equivalent. And so 
you know, for someone like myself, who is 100% clinical, I'm a 1.0 FTE, all of my time is clinical. For someone who is a surgeon scientist, it might be 0.5 FTE clinical and 0.5 research. Um, And so contracts are going to lay out that distribution of effort. The next part is compensation, which we'll go into, um, and it's going to have things like salary, your bonus structure or incentive structure, and then any benefits. The next kind of key parts is, uh, and the part that people oftentimes skip over and then wish they hadn't, is why and how the employer can terminate you. So can depends on what state you live in, if it's a right to work state and things like that. But you know, what are the conditions under which they can terminate the contract before the end of its term? And then on the flip side, it's why and how can you as the employee quit? So what kind of notice, notice do you have to give? And, you know, what are the reasons that you need before you can quit or break the contract? Um, and then there's a few other little things, um, requirements like that you get licensed in that state, that you go through credentialing and obtain, uh, you know, credentials at the institution or privileges, and then conditions for renewal, and then kind of like extra little clauses and things like that. Those are the main components of a contract. So that could be anywhere from three to 12 pages, depending on how detailed it is. Okay, great. Yeah, that's a great breakdown of sort of the basics. In our talks before, you mentioned that there's now these letters of intent. I've heard of these in you know college sports, but never in medicine. Is this a thing? And what does it mean? Is it binding? Sure. So a letter of intent is really just the first step in the negotiation process of an employment relationship. Um, and again, as someone who came to medicine, you know, never in business, I had no idea what this is. Um, and I have my trainees come to me and they say, hey, I just got this letter of intent. What does it mean? And essentially all it is, is it's laying out the basic terms of employment to make sure that both parties are on the same page before negotiations. So essentially laying out the salary or the compensation. If you know an applicant is looking for a job that pays $500,000 a year and the institution is offering $300,000 a year, that's a pretty wide gap to negotiate. And so that may be a point at which an applicant says, you know what, this is just a no-go for me. I'm not even going to waste everybody's time by trying to negotiate because we're never going to get to the right spot. Um, So this is, a letter of intent is usually not legally binding. There are some states where there's consideration, but for the most part, you know, residents should consider these non-binding agreements that state both parties want to move forward with negotiations and that they will do so in good faith. And so it doesn't guarantee your job, doesn't guarantee any of the terms, but just that you're going to move forward with negotiations. Um, Are are these generally made by the institution and sent to you to sign or how does this work? Yes. Yeah. So they're, they're made, you know, the institution, I'm sure their legal team comes up with all of these. um, And it's usually a couple of pages. And again, just basic terms of where we're starting from for negotiations. Um, Oftentimes, institutions will present it as if you've signed the letter of intent, you're not going to be negotiating with anybody else. So you're not also negotiating in for three other jobs um, and that kind of thing. And institutions will use this as a way of saying, Hey, you're our number one recruit. 
you're the person we're going to negotiate with. This is our sign of interest in moving forward with you. And so, you know, it's a good thing. It's certainly not required. Um, you know, I, in the two jobs that I've had, one had me sign a letter of intent, one did not. So it's not something that's required, but certainly it can take, um, you know, residents by surprise if all of a sudden they're presented something on their second interview and they say, Hey, if you want to move forward, sign this. Great. So you give a, you give a nice talk on, um, you know, on these topics and a few of us, uh, Kevin and I've had, had the, uh, the, you know, been fortunate to uh, see this. Um, and in there you talk about, you know, 10 things I wish I had known. Uh, and it, I believe this is when you're talking about negotiations. Um, I thought there was a lot of really important points in there that, that uh, encapsulate things nicely. Would you be able to touch on these, you know, 10 things you wish you knew or, you know, the 10 golden rules or, or whatever you want to call it? Sure. Absolutely. Um, and again, these are all things I learned the hard way. Um, and so the first is get everything in writing. So unless it's part of the contract, none of your negotiations uh, are legally binding unless they're in writing. And institutions will use that to their advantage. So you may be negotiating with someone verbally and they commit to something, but if you don't get it in writing, it never happened. So that's first and foremost. The second thing, and I think this is the part that's really hard for residents, is that you have far more bargaining power than you could ever realize. Um, you know, you're coming from a place where you feel like you've never had to negotiate for anything. And so, you know, residency is really hard. Training is hard. And so you think of attending hood as like the promised land, uh, which, I'll, you know, as you all know, it's uh, it's a lot harder than it looks. But um, when you're presented with a contract, the instinct, I think, is for everyone to feel like they're going to get treated fairly, just like they were when they're residents. And the institutions are trying to get you to do as much work product for as little cost. Believe it or not, medicine is a business, even though none of us got into it for those reasons. I certainly didn't, you know, we're there to serve the patients. So does it matter if you make 350 or 400? Like a lot of us don't really think about that. Um, but over the course of your career, it will make a difference if you don't negotiate. Um, so the third point I talk about is trust no one. Um, and it's one of those things that you kind of say it tongue in cheek, but, you know, unfortunately, these are people who are not your friends. These are your employers. So they're not looking out for your best interest. You know, I tell people you shouldn't take a job where you wouldn't want to work with these people and you don't trust them. But at the same time, from a contract standpoint, you should trust no one. A couple of points for negotiation. So you as the resident or fellow who's getting the job should never make the first offer in terms of compensation. Um, just like any job, you should never be the first one putting out the number. And then the same vein, you should never accept the first offer. This is truly just a starting point for negotiations. Um, so, you know, if you're getting down the wire and you don't have a job and you feel like you just got a sign, um, you know, I would caution people on signing that first offer because once you're locked in, you can't go renegotiate uh, for a couple of years. Um, one point that I didn't realize, I think, as a, a trainee is that compensation is really multifaceted. And so it's not just your salary. There's so much more that goes into it. 
And so when you're talking numbers, you have to know what the numbers really mean. And so I tell people all the time, you don't want to work for free, certainly. But at the same time, money isn't everything. So it's not just salary. It's, you know, how is the institution going to support you or how is the practice going to support you and those kinds of things. Um, A couple other points. Uh, So knowing how your time will be spent as a surgeon. So I'm a trauma surgeon. Uh, I don't enjoy doing elective general surgery. That's just not what I like doing. And I can tell you in my first job, I did not realize how much I was going to have to be doing. Um, and it, you know, I like operating, but an inguinal hernia repair is probably a poor use of my skills as a trauma surgeon. And so you have to know how your time is going to be spent. If you're going to be spending 90% of your time doing wound care clinic and vein clinic, and all you want to do is fenestrated EVARs, right? It's a setup for being unhappy. So know how your time is going to be spent and know how patients are going to get to you. This is particularly important for private practice jobs or hospital employee jobs, you know, for academic centers. And, you know, like for me as a trauma surgeon, the patients show up, right? I don't have to recruit anybody to come see me in clinic. Um, But for a hospital employed job, you need to know how referrals happen. So are you just in a big pool and whoever the first surgeon is available who has a time slot is going to get that referral or is there a seniority all those kinds of things. And then the last point is that um, a contract lawyer is really, really required for all private practice jobs or hospital employee jobs. I don't think it's required for an academic surgical job. Um, it's certainly nice, but um, you know, I really think the private practice jobs, you need somebody who does this full-time as an employment lawyer, right? You know, you see, we see experts and we refer to experts. These are the experts in contracts. So don't try to go this alone. Uh, those are fantastic. Yeah. And I, I've heard some people like the contract lawyers for no other reason to get a good understanding of it for their future contracts. Um, and so even if you're you know, not going to be doing a hard negotiation or whatnot, it can be helpful in that respect. I, I just wanted to emphasize two points you made just in my little experience in, in the business side of medicine is you know, these administrators, these, they are not your friends. And, and I feel like, like when you match residency and fellowship, it's a little different. It's a little bit of a, oh, we really want you here. You want like, and there's sort of a lovey feely thing, but like these administrators, you know, really just want to get the best deal they can. Um, and so keep that in mind, get hire the lawyers to help you negotiate whatever it is. And then the other thing I was going to say is negotiate. So many people in medicine just are so uncomfortable with the idea of negotiations and the business side of the world that happens every day for them. Every single deal they do, it's a back and forth. And I, for, for whatever reason, I found myself feeling uncomfortable with that. And I'm sure other uh, trainees and attendings um, just, you know, are probably feeling comfortable with it also, but it, but it is part of the normal world. And I think that's one of the hardest things for residents and fellows to understand is that negotiation is expected. Like this is how the rest of the world works. And so you know, if you don't negotiate, you're going to get yourself in trouble. You know, and what I tell my residents is, you know, you've been doing this for five or seven years under really suboptimal, you know, conditions. You work long hours. You don't have control of your time. You're kind of used to working in tough situations. You just work harder, right? You find your work around or you do whatever it is. And when you're an attending, 
there is no light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> if you have agreed to six calls a month, you have to do six calls a month unless you get more partners, renegotiate your contract or quit. Like those are your options. And so, you know, it, it can seem like, oh, six calls, that's no big deal. Well, six calls a month for the rest of your life, right, can be a significant amount of time. Absolutely. So speaking of this, um, salary is one of the first things that comes to our mind. How do you evaluate what a fair salary is? Yeah. So first and foremost is be educated and educate yourself on what the fair market value which is sort of a business term of your skills and work product is. And so that essentially means what would a reasonable person expect to um, uh, get pay- paid or get compensated for? And what would, um, what would they pay other people for the same work product? So same job, same, you know, kind of uh, definition of FTE and all those kinds of things. And so, the first thing to do is kind of figure out, you know, what is your clinical productivity? What's your research productivity? Do you get compensated for that? Or is that something you all you do, you know, in your quote spare time? Um, What is your educational productivity? So, um, you know, a program director for residency gets an offset because that is a, a work product and that they get compensated for that. Uh, And the same kind of thing for administrative type productivity. So are you the, bariatric surgery, you know, service director, are you an ICU director? Are you division chief? All those kinds of things require effort. And so what are, what are the, what's the compensation for each of those things? What's reasonable. So the first way to get yourself educated is to, there's two sources. The first is MGMA, which is medical group management association. So this is a compilation of national data. It's self-reported from surgeons on what their total compensation is. And so it's all practice types. It's private practice, hospital employed, and academic. So it tends to skew a little bit higher than the academic. Um, so if you're looking for an academic surgical job, you really need to go to the AAMC data. And these are going to be available in all of your... Um, medical center libraries, or you can pay for them. I wouldn't suggest paying for them because you can just go track them down in the library. Um, But it publishes the, you know, 25th percentile, the median, the 75th percentile for each specialty and for rank. So for example, for trauma surgeon, you know, an assistant professor at an academic medical institution, the median salary is $364,000. I said I said salary, but I really meant compensation. So total compensation. So how does um, uh, how does location play into all this? You know, we we hear about people that um, you know for whatever reason they they really want to live in uh, you know a, a very desirable big city. You know, versus you know working in a more rural environment. How much does that affect things, um, and, and in what way? Well, it's supply and demand. Right. So it's a very basic business principle and there is a national surgeon's shortage. So desirable places, you know, like Chicago or I live in Nashville now, which is, you know, a hot market has a lot of surgeons for every job. If you go into a more rural place, say, you know, Wyoming, they're not going to have as many surgeons. And so 
that can affect your total compensation because they need to lure these surgeons to a more, uh, you know, maybe quote undesirable location, but also at the same time, they may not have in terms of RVU production, a high RVU producer. So their, their compensation may be changed. So, um, if you're looking for regional data, the AAMC has that. So for instance, they break it down to Midwest or Northeast uh, type jobs because it's you know cheaper to live in the mid- Midwest than it is in New York or Boston. Um, you know, the, the academic jobs are gonna be a little bit more kind of hit or miss in terms of availability. So, you know, a subspecialty job, you know, a, a liver transplant surgeon, they may only be hiring every three to five years. And if that doesn't match up with when you finish training, you know, you're not going to be able to live in Chicago. You may have to look in other locations. And so, you know, availability of a job and location can really impact where you ultimately end up. So one thing when we're talking about salaries and contracts, we all hear about RVU targets. Uh, You know, at, at least as a trainee, I really had no concept of an RVU kind of what a normal RVU load is. Um, uh, you know, I've kind of heard of 7,500 is like sort of a median number. I don't know if that's true. Um, can you tell us what our views are and, and sort of what's a realistic number? And I'm sure it matters for specialty, but just in the big picture. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll tell you, I was in the same boat. I had zero idea what an RVU was and what uh, the amount of work it took to get one RVU versus 10 uh, as a resident. Because, you know, we just work, right? We don't get paid more if we work harder. You just do the work that's there in front of you. So RVU is relative value unit. um, And there's three parts to it. There's the work RVU. And then there's the medical malpractice part, which is the teeny tiny part. And then there's um, the RVU PE, which is like uh, the kind of practice expense part of RVU. What we really care about is the work RVU. And that's about 53% of the total RVU value. Um, And so what has happened in sort of the medical industry is that we have assigned a RVU work number to procedures, to, you know, providing care in the hospital. And we have assigned a value that value then gets converted to dollars with a conversion factor. So for uh, CMS, Medicare and Medicaid, that conversion factor is right now $34 and 60 cents. That's actually down from $36 a couple of years ago. So that's kind of like the basement. Uh, Third-party payers, so Blue Cross Blue Shield or you know, a, you know United Healthcare or something like that, their conversion factor is going to be a little bit higher. So that could be up to sixty or seventy dollars. So what that tells you is, you know, your payer mix is important. So are you taking care of a large portion of Medicare Medicaid patients or unfunded patients, or are you a private practice? who's taking care of mostly third party insured patients where your conversion factors can be higher. Right. So if you have a high conversion factor population, you don't have to work as many RVUs to get the same amount of compensation. So you mentioned 7,500, that's sort of the average RVU production for a general surgeon in the United States. Um, And what that really boils down to is numbers, right. Of procedures. So I didn't know this as a trainee, a lap coli is 10.47 RVUs. So whether it takes you 18 minutes 
to do a lap coli or it takes you four hours, you get 10 RVUs. And so what that means is, you know, 7,500 divided by 10 is 750 lap coli's a year. If you were only doing lap coli's. Um, it's so a lot of lap coli's. I mean, I love lap coli's, but <laughs> I don't know that I would ever want to do 75 or uh, sorry, 750 of them a year. Um, but so it helps to know what all those things are. So like an X-lap is 12 RVUs. A splenectomy is just shy of 20. Um, those kinds of things. So a post um, like operation day, you're still in the global period, right? You don't get extra work for seeing your patients after the operation. But if you're preoperatively taking care of them and you see them on three different days, what, what does that equal out to? So it's under, a, under one RVU per day per patient. Wow. So. Seems impossible to get to 7,500. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't want to brag. I, I, uh, I do a lot more than 7,500 in a year. I'm a, we're real, real, really, really busy. Um, but you could see how it is really hard to get to 7,500. And so that's why if your contract has an RVU target, you have to know if that's a reasonable target for your area, for your specialty, you know, and those kinds of things. Again, if you can't get patients in the door through referrals, you can't generate the RVUs through your procedures and you can't hit your targets. It'd almost be, it'd be interesting, you know, if I were to go back and uh, be a resident again and try and calculate or, you know, track your RV, RVU production for a year just to kind of get a sense of, you know, when you're out looking for a job, you know, how much you're actually going to have to work in order to, in, in order uh, to uh, make a living. So that should be, um, I feel like that should be part of a uh, residency training. We might make some changes to our program as a result. Um, so now we have a, you know, a pretty decent understanding uh, that there's a lot that goes into compensation. It's more than just um, the flyer you get in the mail that says your salary is this much. Can you discuss uh, what some of those other critical components when we talk about total compensation, you know, what else fits into that other than the salary? Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot. So, you know, even though the median salary for a trauma surgeon, uh, your median compensation is $364,000, I can guarantee you that's not what my paycheck says. Um, so the first thing, in addition to your salary, is going to be bonuses. And so there's different kinds of bonuses, and you have to know what all of those are, and the contract should really lay all of those out for you. So number one, do you get a signing bonus? So this isn't common in academic medical centers to get a signing bonus much more common in private practice jobs um, or hospital employee jobs. You get an annual bonus based on what X factor. So it could be the productivity. Uh, it could be quality metrics. It could be academic production. You know, so if you hit 10 publications in a year, you get an extra, you know, incentive bonus. So the contract should lay out what the bonus structure is and how you meet those metrics. So again, how do they determine what your work product should generate in terms of compensation? After that, um, there's a bunch of different things. So um, for example, CME money, right? Everybody kind of, as a resident, you're like, oh, there's some CME money. They might, they might buy my loops for me or they'll buy me a textbook. But as an attending, you know, you have to know whether you get X number of dollars each year and it's use it or lose it, 
or as long as you're presenting at a podium, they'll pay, you know, for 17 conferences a year and you can fly to Iceland and all those kinds of things, you know, what are the limits to the CME policy and, um, and that money? The next kind of big component, and I think this is really important that trainees don't understand this, is retirement. So what is your employer going to contribute to your retirement savings? Um, and what are, what are you going to contribute? So that can be highly variable. So some places won't contribute anything for X number of months or years. So for example, my first job, I had no matching for two years. It's a long period of time to not have an employer match. In contrast, the job I have currently, it was started matching this, you know, the day I stepped foot back on campus. Um, so know what those things are, because what a reasonable amount of employer matching is, you know, is a little bit variable. So is it 2%? Is it 4%? Is it 6%? You know, that adds up very quickly. The next part, and that this is something I had no idea was a thing, it's called the vesting schedule. And so essentially what this is, is when an employer matches a contribution to your retirement savings, at what point does their money become your money? And so that can happen continuously. So every month you're 100% vested. So as soon as that money hits your account at Fidelity or wherever your money is, that's yours. Or does it vest once a year? And so if you leave any time before that vestment, you know, vesting schedule has crossed that limit, they can take their money back. They don't have to give that to you anymore. And so I did not know that was a thing until I went to go get, you know, my first job. So another couple small points, um, you know, call stipends, um, that is going to be variable on the institution. So if you take in-house call versus at-home call, do you get money for those? Or do you get nothing? Um, do you get it if you take a certain number of calls above a threshold? So if you have, say, five or six calls in a month and it's a bad month, somebody's out and you have to take 10 calls, will your employer compensate you for that extra time or is it just something that you have to do, you know, on your goodwill? Um, you know, and those kinds of things. So call stipend can vary highly um, throughout the country and institution. And then the last couple of things are sort of like other benefits. So health insurance, uh, HSA or FSA contributions, what's your long-term disability plan, right? Is it good long-term disability coverage or is it crappy coverage that you're going to have to go out and get your own separate policy? You know, that may cost, depending on when you get it, between three and $700 a month for your long-term disability insurance. Um, and then other kind of extras. So do they pay for your parking or do you have to pay? Do If you have to go between multiple institutions, will they compensate you for mileage? Do they pay for your cell phone or laptop? Um, you know, are they going to pay to move you across the country? Um, and then the last little bit of compensation um, is called capital equipment. And so this is uh, equipment that's purchased by the hospital or the institution, things like an ultrasound machine or a special pan of, you know, OR instruments. So will they buy you the fancy, you know, laparoscopic graspers that you want, or are you stuck with whatever they have? So all that can go into your compensation structure. Wow. There really is a lot in there. 
Uh, we're definitely in this financial series have some episodes talking about disability insurance and, and retirement accounts and stuff. So our listeners will definitely learn a little bit more about that. But thank you for covering all that. And uh, as we talk about all those aspects, and we talked about how important negotiating is, which aspects of those are more willing um, or more able to be negotiated? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, there's a myth that everything is negotiable, um, and it's really not true. Um, but there's a lot of things that are. So, you know, first and foremost, obviously, your salary is going to be negotiable to an extent. Um, again, because of the fair market value, institutions have to pay you what they pay other people, or what they would pay other people. So if they already have a base set level of what they pay assistant professors, they're not going to be able to go a whole bunch beyond that because then it's unfair to the other people that they already employ, right? They're, they are valuing your skill set at above what they value other people with the same type job description. Um, other things that are negotiable. So we talked about those RVU targets. So that's negotiable. You know, if, if somebody comes to you with a 12,000 RVU target per year, that's probably not reasonable. You can negotiate that down based on your research. You know, if you do, highly complex operations that have tons of RVUs, but you only do one a week, right? You have to figure out what that's going to be. Other things, uh, signing bonuses can be negotiable. So whether or not they give you one or not, um, or they pay for your moving expenses and how much they pay for, um, you know, you'd be surprised how expensive it is to move across the country. Um, other things that are negotiable are, you know, your FTE or your protected time. So if, if you're, Starting out and you want to be a surgeon scientist, you need protected time. So how is the institution going to ensure that you get that? So if they are going to start you off at 25% protected time, that means that they're supplementing your salary uh, until you can obtain grant funding and those kinds of things. Um, another couple of things that's really important is uh, your actual start date of employment. So I tell all of my residents and fellows, you need to take time off between training and starting your real job. You should take, I took six weeks. I should have taken eight. Um, You know, you need to take some time off and just decompress a little bit from training, but institutions have some leeway. They can start you on the payroll August 1st, but not have you clinically active until August 15th. And that way you're getting paid for two weeks where you're going to be essentially more academic not really working clinically. Um, So those kinds of things are negotiable. Um, Also vacation or PTO time, those things can be negotiable, but not necessarily. Great. So we've already kind of established that our training really does not prepare us to be uh, master negotiators and it does not come natural to most surgeons, um, but we need to do it. And that things like counter offers are expected. Do you have any tips and tricks for, you know, this world um, that is not familiar to us? Like who should we be talking to? Who should we be negotiating with? Um, what are some things that can help us navigate this? Yeah, absolutely. So we've talked about it already, but negotiation is expected, right? This is a contract and an employment relationship. And it, we've talked about not accepting the first offer. So they will expect you to negotiate. So I think just having that knowledge is really helpful to residents and trainees. You're not being greedy. You're not, you know, asking for things that are unreasonable by negotiating. You're trying to get the best deal for yourself and the institution. And so 
a successful negotiation is one where people come away with both parties being happy. And so a couple of like key points for negotiation, first and foremost is be overly polite, be very positive. A couple of reasons. You never know who's on speakerphone, you know, who's sitting on your off, your, your future boss's, you know, table uh, and they've got you on speakerphone, you know, they can be BCC'd on emails and emails can be forwarded along. So, you know, just be careful in your interactions with people. Um, you don't want to counter offers too quickly. So what I tell my residents and trainees is that minimum is 48 hours for a response. So you're going to get an offer. You need to take time to evaluate that offer and if it's reasonable and then what you're going to counter that offer with and find the data to support your counter offer. When you do, you know, go through the negotiation process, typically they're going to give you a first offer you're going to counter, they're going to counter back. And then that may go through one or two cycles, usually not more than that in terms of counter offers. So when you are countering, you want to always respond with kind of open-ended questions or requests. So can we do better on the signing bonus? So you don't want to suggest an actual number unless you have very specific data that supports that number. Um, other tips for negotiation are, you know, you can either negotiate by phone or in person. It's a lot harder to say no to somebody when you're face-to-face across a small table. It is much easier to say no via email, right? Because it's a little bit impersonal. And so anything that's negotiated verbally is then going to be followed up with a written contract. You know, you've got to have it all in writing like we talked about, Um And then a couple other points just to go through things. So don't push too hard on your negotiations. You know, it's hard to know what too hard is, right? If you've never done this before, right? What, what is taking a hard line and what is a reasonable request? So a reasonable request to say, you know, can we do better on the moving expenses? That's reasonable. If you say, I'm going to need $40,000, in moving expenses. Well, that's not reasonable, right? That's like moving across multiple continents. That's not something that's, you know, based in fact. So, you know, go in with open-ended questions and then, you know, go from there with data to support that. And then the last part is really know yourself. If you are going to have a hard time negotiating, have someone negotiate for you, right? Have a lawyer do it have, you know, that that's going to be an employment lawyer or a contract lawyer can negotiate. The other thing that could be hard is negotiating with someone who's going to be your future boss, right? You want them to like you. You want them to give you a job. You don't want to seem like a jerk who's greedy and just is all about the money. So ask to negotiate with a department administrator or, um, you know, a chair or somebody who maybe you're not going to have face-to-face interaction with at your job. It's much easier to negotiate with those people. And they are also the ones holding the purse strings. Very rarely is it your division chief who's going to be negotiating your salary, right? That's going to happen at the chair level or at the administrator level. So those are kind of my tips and tricks for negotiation. There's a huge wealth of literature, um, you know, on Never Split the Difference is a great book. There's a bunch of other things. So, you know, just like you prepare for you know, your in-service exam or you prepare for your boards, 
you know, educate yourself on negotiation because this is your job, right? This is going to be the next three to five years of your life. Yeah, definitely. Uh, a lot of great learning points here. So as we're getting towards the end here, you mentioned some contract landmines in your talk. Can you share that with our audience? Sure. So just like you have to read every single word of the contract when you lease a car or when you buy a house, same kind of thing. You have to read every single word and find the landmines in your contract. So a couple of things. Uh, The first is your practice location. So you need to know where you're going to be working, right? Increasingly, hospitals are being consolidated into systems, right? So bigger hospitals are kind of buying off these littler hospitals that are, you know, 45 minutes out from the main hospital or something like that. So you need to know, are you going to be working at the main hospital? Are you going to be working an hour and a half away? And, you know, you didn't know that until you showed up or, you know, you're very far down the negotiation. And so you need to know where you're going to be working. Can they, if something changes, can they send you somewhere else? So for example, HCA is a whole national system. If all of a sudden they need trauma surgeons in Florida, can they send me to Florida? You know, what's the notification? What's kind of the the restrictions on that thing, right? Because if you've moved your whole life, you've got your family and all of a sudden you now have to move again, right? That's, that's a bad situation. So what are the stipulations for changing where you might work? A couple of other things are called penalty or recapture clauses. So these are monetary consequences if you break the contract. So for example, if you join a private practice and they spend a bunch of money to bring you in, hire a new medical assistant, hire you an NP, build out your office space, you know, and then invest in capital equipment and you leave after six months, do you owe them money back? Okay. So there's going to be terms for that. So you have to know what those are. Same kind of thing is if, if you are fired for cause, can they recoup money? So if you show up to work drunk and you get fired for cause, can they now recoup money from you? Okay. So that's penalty or recapture. Um, Obviously, no one enters into a contract thinking that they're going to break it, right? But you have to know what the consequences are for you. If you've signed a contract where they paid off your student loans, you know, they paid off $250,000 of your student loans and you leave after 18 months, do you have to pay them back? And at what interest rate, right? Or is it a lump sum? Super important stuff because otherwise you're stuck in a practice where you're unhappy. Um. One of the things that gets a lot of uh, attention is something called a restrictive covenant. This is essentially, um, you know, can you go work somewhere nearby? So if you and an employer part ways, either at the end of your contract or you get poached by another hospital system, can you go work across the street? So there's going to be non, it's essentially a non-compete. Most of these non-competes, look worse in writing than in reality, right? The institution would have to come after you if you walked down the road, but they will have very specific language about, you know, if you decide to leave and you go 25 miles down the road, can you poach your scrub tech and have them come with you? That's definitely a no, no. Um, And so they're going to have language in there for that, but know what your restricted covenant is or your non-complete non-compete. So for example, 
my non-compete has a 10 mile radius. Well, the biggest competition for my hospital is nine miles away, right? They chose 10 for a reason. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you just have to know what that stuff is. Um, And then the last couple of things um, for landmines is what's called boilerplate uh, language. This is very standardized language. um, And most of these things aren't negotiable, but you have to read and understand what all of these clauses are. Um, And a, a lot of it goes into renewal of contract or what the process is for firing you but have read it and understand what those things are. And then importantly is uh, something called tail insurance. So this is medical malpractice insurance that essentially follows you or covers you after your term of contract of employment. So for example, say you're at a place for three years, you guys part on good terms, but something about your life, you need to go somewhere else. Well, if someone sues you two years down the road, are you still covered by that medical malpractice or insurance, or do you need to provide your own tail insurance for those cases? Tail insurance is super expensive. So you need to know if your institution is going to provide that for you or not and what the terms are, you know, is it for a lifetime? Is it a year? Is it three years? Those kinds of things. Wow. Okay, great. Yeah. A lot of stuff uh, I was, uh, I was not aware of. Um, so uh, final question. So we've, you know, the gender disparities um, in pay and compensation is pretty well documented at this point in, in medicine um, and in surgery and even in academic medicine. What's been your experience with this? And um, do you have any advice? How, you know, how can we begin to unravel this? Sure. So I think first and foremost, you know, is identifying that it's actually a problem. It is a thing. There is a gender disparity disparity in compensation for surgeons and physicians in general. So specifically for surgeons, a female surgeon earns 8% less than a male surgeon. Even when you control for specialty, their age or their rank, um, their metrics of uh, clinical productivity. So female surgeons are 8% less. That's kind of across all things. And that disparity starts when you enter the workforce. So it's at that assistant professor level or that first attending job is when pay disparity starts. And it's really interesting because it wouldn't seem like given the fair market value for compensation that there should be a disparity, but it really is. And unfortunately, it widens over time. So when you get to that full professor level or that chair level, a 20% differential. So female chairs are earning 20% less than a male chair for the same job. To follow up on his question, how can we do better with this, especially even um, for the female surgeons out there applying for jobs in the coming years? So I think first and foremost, again, is knowledge. So, you know, my partners and I um, took the approach that we're going to be really transparent with each other to protect each other. And that's what I think we need to do as surgeons, right? You know, we need to be protecting everybody who comes in after us. So, you know, there is no legal penalty for discussing salary. They can't fire you for discussing salary. And so knowledge is power. Know what other people are making. Know why the last person left. Is it because they were a strictly RVU production compensation 
but all of the referrals were being funneled to the male partners, right? So if you're new to a system and you have to build up your referral network, you're going to make less for the first few years because you don't have that referral network in place. You know, the gastroenterologist doesn't know you. And if they're the main IBD person in town and they only refer to the male surgeon, right? Like, what can you do to to change that practice? So uh, as I said, knowledge is really power. And I think we have a responsibility as surgeons to look out for our, you know, co-surgeons, you know, this is a profession and it is a noble profession, but it only works if everybody gets compensated as they should be, you know, and fairly, you know, right now, if you look at it over the career of a female surgeon, if it's an academic, uh, they earn $1.3 million less. If it's general, you know, community, uh, community-based private practice surgeon, it's $2.5 million less. And so, you know, that's some paying for somebody's kid to go to college and go to medical school or, you know, or all three of their kids to go to college, (laughs) you know, you know, we, we, we should distribute the work equally. We should distribute the compensation equally. And so, um, you know, I, I feel pretty strongly about this, that transparency is the way to go, right? None of this stuff should be shrouded in secrecy. If, you know, one of your partners negotiates really hard and gets, you know, $10,000 extra as a signing bonus. You know, do I really care about that? You know, maybe a little, right? But I really care about the compensation on salary. You know, if you've negotiated to get a compensation bonus based on productivity and you negotiated for 20% and I was only given 10%, that's a lot of money each year. Absolutely. And I know some of the tech companies, you know, have transparency, like you can look on their website, their internal website to see what everyone makes to as kind of one step to fight this. And I think it's important for us to even share our salaries with our trainees. So they kind of know, you know, what to expect, what, and all the rest of it. So Dr. Streams, this was such a great talk and we really appreciate there's so much we could dive into on this and talk about this for hours but i think this would be a really great primer for the trainees and even the surgeons out there that are looking for their next job so thank you for sharing your wisdom and experience with the listeners behind the knife absolutely it's, you know it's been a pleasure and i'm happy to talk to anybody um you know offline and sometimes you just need a fresh pair of eyes on things to know like hey is this reasonable is this not reasonable and so you know i just recommend that trainees use your networks and build your networks of uh, you know people you can go to and say, Hey, this is where, this is my next step. This is my contract. Does this look reasonable? Will you look this over for me? You know, I tell all of my residents and trainees from prior institutions, co-residents that I'm always happy to look at things again, disclaimer, I'm not a contract lawyer. Um, but if you've done it a couple of times, you know, um, I think we can all share that knowledge with each other. So um, it's been a real pleasure being on with you guys. And I'm happy to talk with any more, anyone offline, you know, as well. It's the best way for them to find you on Twitter. Yep. Just Twitter, which is just my name, JCR streams. Um, you know, and I keep that one pretty one, pretty much just work related plus black hockey. Cause I'm a big fan. <laughs> Great. Okay. Well, thank you again. Yeah, absolutely. 
Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.